Good morning. As uh, I hope many of you know, I just got back from a trip with our youth group. I've been serving our youth for some time. It was a lot of fun. Um, while we were there, I think our youth group got to see uh, a side of me that they had not seen before. And uh, they uh, practically begged me to do something the next time I was in the pulpit, and here I am. And I told them there was absolutely no way that I would do it. It would be far too undignified, far too unseemly for me to stand up here and yell, na, 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 na. There you go. I hope you're happy. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who have no idea what just happened, uh, that's okay. It was an inside joke between me and the kids. Um, I've had a lot of fun with them over the past uh, eight, eight to ten months now. Um, I'm sad to be uh, stepping down from leading them, um, but I'm also very excited about where they're headed. If you are a parent of youth, um, you should take note of uh, the announcement in the bulletin there for you that there's going to be an informational meeting coming up for you. Put it on your calendar. You'll want to be there to find out all the awesome new things that will be going on with the youth, both the junior and senior high. Um, Another thing I just want to say while I'm while I have your attention, is uh, as Max prayed, uh, new students actually move in today. Today is the first day of early move-in, I think. Is that right, Evan? Today is the first day of early move-in. Pray for us. Pray for the new students. Um, It's a hard transition to make to come to IU. A lot of crazy things are going to be happening. A lot of uh, new temptations for students. Pray for me as I seek to lead our campus ministry. Pray for our students as we seek to reach out to uh, new students. Uh, Pray especially for, uh, we have three men living in the dorms now. Uh, Evan is one of them. He's actually going to be an RA, um, seeking to minister to students. We have a couple others, uh, Micah Berkey and Andrew Theory. Uh, The dorms are a hard place to live, a challenging place, but I think these men are committed to uh, seeing other students reach with the gospel, so please keep them in your prayers. Um, and, and pray that God would keep them all from temptation. Um, so that said, Lord willing, next week and in the coming weeks, we're going to have an influx of new students. Um, so as I said, pray for them, but also be ready to welcome them into our church and into your homes and into your small groups. Be ready to love them as you've always done in the past. Um, and go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's my job this morning to uh, attempt to push us ahead in our series through 1 Corinthians. Um, We've been there, I think, now for, maybe somebody can correct me, well over three years. Is that right? I think that's right, and I think we're just now about two-thirds of the way done. So uh, we've got uh, some some work ahead of us, so I'm going to try to tackle 12 verses this morning. before we get started, most of you know that when I was in college, I was uh, involved in Campus Crusade and InterVarsity. Um, when I came up to school, I'd only been a believer about a year, um, and I went on my first retreat with InterVarsity, I think in the fall, and uh, something happened there that uh, I'll never forget. It was a big retreat. It was more like a conference. There were uh, students from other campuses around the state, and I think a campus in Illinois, um, and we were in some kind of breakout session. This was like at least 10 years ago, so it's hard for me to remember all the details. But I think we were in some kind of breakout session after a, a main talk, and there was a, a leader of the group, and I think he was a student from another campus, 
from another chapter, but he may have been a leader. I'm really not sure. Um, but we were looking at Hebrews 11. That much is clear. And you know Hebrews 11. It's the, it's the hall of faith, right? It's the, uh, the, the list of dubious heroes of Scripture that are, are there for our uh, imitation and encouragement because of their great sin. And you remember how uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews starts, I hope, right? Does anybody remember? I'm sure you do. The very first line. Nobody knows. Man, you guys are Bible scholars extraordinaire. Some, yeah, now faith is a substance or assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Now you all know, right? Now you all remember. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And this uh, guy who uh, was leading that study, um, he read this verse out loud, and then he lit up like something brand new had just occurred to him, revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And he was really excited, and this was his revelation. Now faith. Like, imagine a hyphen between now and faith. Now faith, as opposed to then faith. Now faith versus then faith. Now faith is the substance of things unseen. Now faith, the kind of faith that we Christians have now, as opposed to the inadequate then faith of our fathers in the faith who are listed there in Hebrews 11. Now, I'm not kidding you. This kid went on a prophetic rant about the contrast between now faith and then faith. And I just sat there kind of dumbfounded, amazed at what was going on, wondering what in the world I'd gotten myself into. Because it was stupid, right? Like, he just changed what the word meant. It was an adverb. He decided it should be an adjective, and the Holy Spirit revealed this to him. Like, um, and then he tried to make a huge sweeping theological point with it. And I was uh, not too stupid. I was smart enough then. I'd only been a believer for a year, but I was smart enough to at least like, understand the English language. You can't just arbitrarily change an adverb into an adjective and say that the Holy Spirit's done it, right? That's not only stupid, it's taking the Lord's name in vain. What I didn't quite understand at that time was why he felt the need to make the theological point that he was making. He felt a tension, I'm convinced he felt a tension as we approached in that passage the men and women of Hebrews 11. It didn't seem quite right to him that those men and women should be examples to us. Something is fundamentally different about us and them. They were before Christ, we are after Christ. Why should their faith be held up to our faith unless it were to show the superiority of our faith to theirs, of now faith to then faith. Now, so why do I tell that story? Well, I think we all have difficulty understanding and applying the Old Testament today. All of us. Every last one of us does. We feel tension. There's something about the Old Testament that's old. That's why we call it the Old Testament. And there's something about the New Testament that is new, different. That's why we call it the New Testament. And yet, both the Old and New Testament are all telling the one and same story of redemption. 
All scripture is profitable, and yet we're to throw away old wineskins. The law has been put away, and yet the law has absolutely not been put away. This morning's passage of Scripture is one of the key passages in the New Testament on this very question. So we have a chance this morning not only to let Scripture interpret Scripture, but to let Scripture teach us how to interpret itself. So I think I told you like 10 minutes ago to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. If you gave up, uh, go ahead and turn there again, and we'll read the passage. Uh, We'll actually begin in verse 24 of chapter 9 so we get some bigger context. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now, of course, I wanted to start with chapter 9 because chapter 10 starts with a little three-letter word that's four. And you can't understand what comes after the word four unless you understand what comes before it, right? So what comes before it? The Apostle Paul has been exhorting the Corinthian church to be self-controlled and self-disciplined. They're an extremely proud church. An extremely proud church. They think that they've arrived. They think that there's something. They think they've won the race. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells them that they're wrong. Even he, as an apostle, has to work hard to discipline himself. He has to run in the race as though he were trying to win. He's a preeminent apostle. How much more do we, how much more do you and I have to exercise discipline and self-control then, striving to persevere in the faith to the very end? The Apostle Paul has been working hard to show them that they have not arrived yet. They know something about games and sports, and so he uses the analogy of a race. Everybody in the race runs, all run, but not everybody wins. 
all run, but not everybody wins. They haven't won the race. Not yet. In fact, they're just strutting around at the starting blocks, and yet they have the audacity to strut around like Usain Bolt after he's you know, finished his 100 meters. But they haven't gone anywhere. They've got their uniform on and their track shoes laced up tight, and they think that it's enough that they're on the track. Everybody runs in the race, but not everybody wins. And that's where this morning's passage comes into play. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. All run, but not all win. All our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized. You understand what he's saying. They all came out of Egypt. They all walked through the Red Sea. Every last one of them. They all were under the protection and guidance of Christ in the cloud and in the pillar. They all partook of Christ in some spiritual way. All of them, every last one of them, had stood up to the starting blocks, but not all of them won. Many of them fell. Many of them were destroyed in the wilderness. They did not all make it to the promised land. In fact, most of them came short. The Apostle Paul is trying to make a point here, and it's an obvious one. And yet, it's one that we still stumble on. It's one we have difficulty with. It's one that we don't want to see. It's one that we contrive ways to avoid seeing. He's very simply looking at this church full of Corinthians who have sinned in all the ways that the people of Israel have sinned and saying to them, listen, our fathers in the faith were just like us. You're just like they are. You are just like they are. They even had, in a manner of speaking, the same sacraments that we have. They had the power and presence of Christ, just like you have. They were baptized. They ate of the Lord's table. Christ was present with them. And yet they fell in the wilderness. They are examples for you. Take heed, lest you follow their example. like I said, we find that very difficult to do. It's very easy to go wrong here. And the reason for that lies within us. It lies within you. We desperately don't want to believe that we are just as bad as these ancient Israelites. And more than that, we desperately don't want to believe that God will deal with us as he dealt with them. We are afraid of knowing the fear of God, and we would much rather shut our ears and our eyes and presume on the grace of God, just as the Corinthians did here. Why does he tell them to take heed? If they think they stand, to take heed lest they stumble. They're presuming on the grace of God. They think that they're standing firm, but they're not. So what do we do? We create theological covers for ourselves. We create all kinds of different ways to get ourselves off the hook 
nothing new. It's a very old trick. Some of our schemes are more devious than others. Some are more sophisticated than others. It, for you, can be just as simple as like never reading passages of Scripture in family devotions that deal with judgment. Or it can be developing a hermeneutical principle to keep you from ever feeling the weight of the judgment of God. In the end, whatever our schemes are, they produce the same result. Whenever we do hit up against any of these nasty Old Testament judgments on the people of God, our schemes give us leave to encant the name of Jesus or chant the mantra of grace and move on and never feel the weight. Two of the most dominant theological camps in American evangelicalism are engaged in this conspiracy. And I'm going to try to hit them both. And I know that some of you accept these labels for yourselves. And I'm asking you to hear me out. The first camp is dispensationalism, and the second is the redemptive historical movement. Dispensationalism was born out of a fear of allegorizing away the words of God, a good fear, a right fear to have. In many ways, dispensationalism is an attempt to take the words of God very seriously, a good thing, to take them literally. Now, that's a little simplistic, and I understand that, but work with me. There's a lot of variation in modern dispensationalism, a whole lot. But at its core is a fundamental denial of any continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God, between Israel and the church. The thinking goes like this. God once dealt with his people Israel, the Jews, and he did so in a certain way under certain terms, under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. Some of his promises to them have been fulfilled, others have not. Either way, they don't apply to me. We are now in a new age. We are in the church age. And God has a new covenant people with whom he engages under entirely different terms. The judgments on the people of God in Scripture were a part of a different dispensation. God doesn't deal with us, the church, as he dealt with Israel. They were under law. We are under grace. That was Israel. This is the church. We are all now in Christ. They were not. Praise God that we're now in the church age where, nice, where things are nice and easy. Now, this being the case, when dispensationalists look at the Old Testament, generally what they see are sort of prescient examples of faith and moral character to be emulated. And they're really there. They're really there. There are men and women of faith who are to be emulated. And that's what Hebrews 11 is actually about. And there are examples to be avoided. But unfortunately, that is all or most all of what dispensationalists generally see. What they don't see, what they don't do, is look at how God dealt with his covenant people then and make application to how God might deal with us as his church now. And they certainly don't look upon God's judgments on the people of Israel as warnings for us now, except for where we have maybe something explicit like this passage. 
But the Apostle Paul is making these exact connections here in 1 Corinthians. It couldn't be more clear. And in fact, God is in the process of judging the church in Corinth in just the same way, or not just the same way, but in a very similar way that he judged the people of Israel in the wilderness. We're just about to get to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to read that many of the people in that church have gotten sick and some have died because they have profaned the Lord's table. They have put God to the test. And so God has struck down in the midst of the Corinthian church, Corinthian believers. church at Corinth hasn't had the sense to realize that that's what's going on, but it is what is going on. It's because they have sinned in just the same ways as the Israelites did in the wilderness. The Apostle Paul is moving there. He's going to go there and explain it to them. At the end of this chapter, he's going to begin to talk about the Lord's Supper. And then he's going to go there in the next chapter and deal with their sin there. In fact, the the Apostle Paul only mentions sins the Corinthians are tangled up in when he deals with these Old Testament examples. Only sins that he has addressed with them. Now, I realize that I've been painting with broad strokes. If you think I'm being unjust, if you think I'm being unfair, if you think I'm just wrong, come talk to me. But there's another movement we have to deal with this morning, too, on the other side. It's a redemptive historical movement. It's a movement born in response to the dispensationalists. If the dispensationalists are afraid of losing the literal words of God, the redemptive historical types are afraid of losing Christ. They look at the dispensationalists and they say, you're missing the boat. You're missing Christ. You're just moralizing. So when they come to any passage of Scripture, they want to see as quickly as possible how it fits into the context of the history of our redemption. The Bible is the unfolding revelation of Christ, and it is filled beginning to end with shadows and types. And that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Jesus meant something when he said that the Scriptures all speak of him. When Jesus met his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he started with Moses and the prophets, and he explained it all to them because it was all there. But here's where many men who consider themselves part of this movement have gone wrong. They've wanted to take the Old Testament and remove all of its application except for grace. Everywhere they turn, they're seeing Christ prefigured. They're seeing types of Christ everywhere. They're seeing grace. They're seeing the gospel. And like I said, those things are there. Grace is there, but grace is not all that is there. And it is not all that applies to us. And that's the problem. They cut out the judgments as if Christ were not and could not possibly be present in the judgments as well. Those were a part of law, but we're under grace. And additionally, they neglect the moral examples while they're at it. So that nothing is left but grace. All that matters is what is foreshadowed. All that matters is how cool it is to see the gospel in stories like David and Goliath, where David crushes the serpent's head. They look at this passage in 1 Corinthians, and what they see is that the rock being broken and pouring out life-giving water is a type of Christ. And of course it is. But that's not the point. 
What's the Holy Spirit teaching us in our passage? He's teaching us that Christ wasn't merely foreshadowed in the Old Testament. He was there. He was in the cloud. He wasn't foreshadowed by the rock. He is the rock. It has always been Christ. Charles Hodge puts it this way. This passage distinctly asserts not only the preexistence of our Lord, but also that He was the Jehovah of the Old Testament. He who appeared to Moses and announced himself as Jehovah, the God of Abraham, who commissioned him to go to Pharaoh, who delivered the people out of Egypt, who appeared on Horeb, who led the people through the wilderness, who dwelt in the temple, who manifested himself to Isaiah, who was to appear personally in the fullness of time, is the person who was born of a virgin and manifested himself in the flesh. He is called, therefore, in the Old Testament, an angel, the angel of Jehovah, Jehovah, the the supreme Lord, the mighty God, the Son of God, one whom God sent, one with him, therefore, as to substance, but a distinct person. Our Lord said, Abraham saw his day, for he was before Abraham, John 8, 58. John says in chapter 12, verse 41, Isaiah beheld his glory in the temple, Paul says the Israelites tempted him in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10, 9, and that Moses suffered his reproach, Hebrews eleven twenty six. 26. Jude 5 says the Lord, or Jesus, saved his people out of Egypt. Everywhere the people of Israel turned, they were experiencing Christ. Christ was there, mediating grace to them and mediating judgment. All the people are baptized, Paul says, All partake of Christ spiritually as they ate spiritual bread and drank spiritual drink. This is one covenant people of God, and that's why they're examples for us to learn from. And some of you want to ask me, how can you say that? They were the old covenant people of God. You have to acknowledge that there was a difference. You have to. I agree with you. You're right. You're absolutely right. But there is no more difference, I don't have to acknowledge any more difference than Scripture does. No more than the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit goes out of His way right here to make very clear and explicit connections between us and them. And He does so in order to warn us. And if we do anything to get out from underneath that warning, that's a wicked and awful thing for us to do. A failure to recognize how this warning applies to us and to think ourselves above the old covenant people of Israel is to fall into the same sin of presumption that the Corinthian church was tangled in. And it is to fail to take advantage of the help this passage offers in the fight against sin. And it is therefore to fall into the same sins as the Corinthians and to come under the same judgments as the people of God did in the wilderness. Or rather, worse judgments. Because we are the new covenant people of God and we have seen and tasted more than they have. We know more than they have. We have experienced Christ in a more full way than they have. And therefore to neglect this salvation is much more costly for us. But back to the Apostle Paul's argument from the Israelites. Although all were baptized in the cloud and in the sea, although all benefited from Christ, 
Although, had, although all had entered the race, not all of them won. Not all of them made it to the promised land. Surely many of them felt very secure when they had exited Egypt. God had sent the plagues on Egypt. Surely they felt secure when they crossed through the Red Sea and the waters collapsed on the armies of Pharaoh and not on them. Surely they felt secure. They had known the power and protection of God. They had had a baptism of sorts. They were being directed by Christ in the cloud and pillar. Surely many of them felt secure when God fed them with bread from heaven, with the spiritual food of manna and the water from the rock that is Christ. Surely they felt secure knowing God's provision for them and God's care. Surely they felt secure, and surely they were wrong to do so. They presumed on God's grace because they had experienced some of his favors and blessings. And they committed idolatry, they committed sexual immorality, they put Christ to the test, and they grumbled. And so God struck them down. The Apostle Paul tells us these things happened as examples for us, as examples for you, as as an example for me, so that you and I would not crave evil things as they also craved. In other words, seeing the judgment that fell on the people of God long ago ought to sober us and ought to cause us to turn from our evil desires lest a worse fate Come upon us. It ought to encourage us to strive for heaven and for holiness with all our might, to discipline our bodies, to run so that we can win. They started the race, but they did not finish the race. All Israel is not Israel, it never has been, it never will be. There are many who have been baptized and partaken of the Lord's table who have turned away from the faith, who have grown up in covenant households, who have turned away. And it's a frightening thing. The church at Corinth had been pulled out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. They were baptized. They had the benefit of the Lord's Supper and the preaching of the word and spiritual gifts, and yet not one of these blessings and favors of God secured their salvation. Not one of them. They only showed that they had entered the race. Not that they had won, and not that they had finished the race. The constant steady warning of the New Testament is that it is not enough to begin well. It is not enough to be baptized. A sower went out to the field to sow grain. Some of it was eaten up, some of it sprung up and held great promise, but the root was shallow. It was burned up and destroyed. It's only by the grace of self-denial that we persevere to the end. Scripture is replete with these kinds of warnings for the people of God. We don't like to think that way because we want to be more spiritual than God is. We want to be motivated by higher purposes. We want to be motivated by grace. And we must be. But to be motivated by grace is never in opposition to knowing the fear of God. Knowing the fear of God is grace in itself. The fear of God drives us to look for real grace and to never settle with cheap, false grace, to never presume on it. 
The fear of God drives us to cast aside cheap grace and to go for the real thing, to lay hold of Christ, to turn from our sins and our presumption and our pride. We have come to something better. Hebrews 12 says this, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound with such that those who heard beg that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. That's what they came to when they heard the law. But you, church, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. It's a glorious picture. Moses didn't see it, not like we see it. Moses didn't taste it like we taste it. It's a better covenant with better promises. We see more, we know more, we've tasted more, which means also that the stakes are higher. Better promises. Moses used a veil. We all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. Better promises, but greater consequences for disobedience. In the very next verse, he says this. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that... Those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews does these things over and over. He's warning the people of God from the example of the Old Testament people of God, just like in 1 Corinthians 10. He's applying God's work with ancient Israel to the church. He's constantly saying things like this. Listen, you have much more light than the people of old. You have had Jesus Christ in his fullness revealed to you. If they didn't escape when they disobeyed, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? And over and over and over again throughout the book of Hebrews and throughout the New Testament, these warnings are there. Brothers, we must take heed lest we fall. Many have done so and made shipwreck of their faith. I am not trying to wreck anyone's assurance of salvation. Neither is the Apostle Paul and neither is the Holy Spirit. What I am trying to do is to undercut any presumption in your life that keeps you from knowing the grace of God so that you and I may find assurance of faith that is real. We constantly need a little shaking up. We constantly need a little waking up so that we renew ourselves in the pursuit of holiness. We need the joys of heaven set before us and we need the horrors of hell and judgment behind us, driving us forward. Salvation is not found in your baptism. It's not found in the Lord's Supper. It's not found in any other sacrament. It's not found in being here. 
It's not found in being a part of the people of God. Salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. He alone can forgive us our sins. He alone can give us the new birth. He alone can cause us to persevere in his ways to the very end. And the glorious thing about the new covenant is that he does it. He has promised to do it. He has done it. He is doing it. He will do it. But we must lay hold of those promises and we must persevere to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word and giving us your warnings. I pray, Father, that you would forgive us our sins. I pray that we would take your warnings to heart and that we would fly from false assurance to Christ, who alone can save us. Father, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.